according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. If you have the whole uh, Bible memorized, you don't have to turn there, but I suspect that we will all be turning to John chapter 8. Episode number 4. In the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus, begins with verse 21 and takes us down through the end of the chapter in verse 59. I am not the author of this uh, Harmony of the Gospels that we're following. It is one that I've adapted from really three different sources, one primary source and then bringing in elements from two other sources to uh, craft one that I guess we could say is our own. Um, this this may actually be a section that I would not have separated from the one that precedes it. That is to say, episode number three in the light of the world message, we picked up our reading in verse 12 and let it go at verse 20 and, and counted that as a single event called you know the, the light of the world message. And, and that's fine so far as it goes, but what really sets verse 20 apart from verse 21? As we read uh, these words, he spoke in the treasury as he taught them in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said again to them, and it just seems to be really a continuation and really seem to be a whole separate event. So keep that in mind as we proceed, because we have a section here that starts in verse 21, takes us down through verse 30, where we have uh, a testimony as to a faith response on the part of some. And, uh, and we don't count that as a separate event because we continue on with verse 31. So Jesus was saying, and then uh, they have a reply and Jesus answers back in verse 34. And then they have a reply and in verse 39. And anyway, it just goes on and on. And, and effectively, all of this chapter, uh, I don't accept the first 11 verses as being original to the text. But from verse 12 to verse 59, it is all one continuous narrative. All one continuous string of message after message after message, probably over the remaining days of the feast. It's, a, it's an eight-day feast. And over the course of that feast, for the remaining days before he leaves Jerusalem again, uh, he would have message after message after message after message where uh, the response was mostly hostility with verse 30 kind of stands out as the exception. In any event, as I said, it's, I'm not following a harmony that's of my origination so we'll leave it the way it is and call this episode four growing conflict with devil's sons before we begin let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is equipped with god the holy spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth shall we pray Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have this morning to assemble together and to receive instruction. Father, we thank you for the um, authority that we have under the scriptures to assemble together, the scope of our present stewardship and dispensation. Father, I thank you for the freedom that our nation offers for local assemblies to gather together without fear of uh, arrest or uh, other persecution. And Father, I thank you that we have a body of believers that are committed to the truth and that are committed to operating within the biblical 
parameters, Father, that we are the household of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And Father, I thank you that we keep first things first and we do not allow ourselves to be caught up in um, areas of distraction, areas that would diminish our purpose and diminish our activity here. So, Father, set aside this time now, set aside distractions, take every thought captive, guide us into the truth. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's read through it here, starting in verse 21. I don't expect that we will get, oh, we'll get down through, I don't know, maybe verses 32 or 33 today. I don't, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm sorry, I'm picking up from the wrong verse here. Verse 21. All right, so we wrap up what we dealt with last week with the light of the world, and uh, they don't like it. They want to seize him, but the Father does not permit him to be seized. So verse 21, then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. All right. So this is what we want to start with. Uh, this is his introductory message, and it sparks their debate amongst themselves. Is he going to kill himself? It sparks a follow-up message where he contrasts the above and below origins. And then it sparks the, uh, the uh, shall we call this, the, the hard message. You're going to hell. You will die in your sin. And uh, I realize there's a lot of folks out there that um, would shy away from such a, a sharp message or would kind of be leery of such a confrontational approach, but this is the approach our Lord used. And there are occasions where it's appropriate, obviously, and there are people for whom this approach is what it takes to get their attention, what it takes to kind of clear the decks and 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 uh, make it that blunt and that unavoidable, you're going to hell. And so uh, this is the approach the Lord takes here. And since we don't ascribe any sin or wrongdoing to the Lord, we can't say this is a wrong approach. And since we observe that there is a faith response in verse 30, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him, we can also identify the effectiveness of this in with certain people at certain times. Now, um, I want to pick up on that. Let's go a little bit further down, though, so we get the uh, the larger picture on this before we start getting lost in some details. So, um, unless you believe that I am, sometimes they have he or something like that in italics afterwards, supplying an object for the verb. Uh, I don't think we need an object for the verb. I think I am itself is the point. And we'll discuss that when we discuss the names of Yahweh. Jehovah, I am, and the significance of who he was claiming to be in this revelation. So unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? And we'll do some work on the beginning 
out of that verse. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Again, he is in italics, does not belong in there. Then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. All right, let's stop with that. It does go on down, like I say, through the rest of the chapter. But for now, let's pick up some points of study because there's so much detail in here and things that are not only useful for us in understanding this stage of his ministry, getting ready for the cross, and really separating those that are going to be saved from those that are going to be crucifying him. All right? First of all, this is not the first time they've heard this, that he's going away and they cannot follow. He told them something very similar in chapter 7. So point one, for those of you keeping notes, Jesus repeats his departure message from chapter 7. And we'll look at that here in a moment. Um, It is a repeat, but this time it's intensified. So point one, Jesus repeats his departure message from chapter 7. That's John 7, 32 through 36. But intensifies it with what I'm calling a soteriological rebuke. Soteriology relates to salvation. Sozo is the verb to save. Soteria is salvation. The soter is the savior. So anything that you discuss in terms of soteriology relates to salvation. In the message in chapter 7, he said he was departing and he said they couldn't follow. In the message in chapter 8, he expands upon that, intensifies it. And not only does he say you cannot follow, but he says you're going to die in your sin. He uses sin singular the first time, and he uses sins plural two times in verse 24. And we'll, we'll highlight those differences here shortly. It's not a contradiction, but both statements are true. Sin singular and sins plural we've taught in the past, and we'll review it here today. So it is a repeat message. Repetition is good. Typically speaking, human beings don't uh, listen to everything they hear the first time around. And even if they do, uh, they don't understand everything they listen to that first time around. And the second time, third time, 105th time, typically more things become uh, obvious. And you say, wow, why didn't I pick up on that, uh, you know, 104 times ago? And that's what we see here. So he's repeating a message. Hold your finger there. Let's glance back. Or maybe I don't even have to flip a page. I can look across from the right to the left and see uh, verses 32 through 36 out of chapter 7. So the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests. And the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. And remember, when he shifts his emphasis to the father, that's when he starts to build more and more satanic hatred. Him who sent me, you will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come where I am. You cannot come. And this I'm not going to go into it today, but this is an aspect of seeking and uh, confirmation. Of course, obviously, these unregenerate unbelievers uh, are not going to find um, in terms of what they're seeking. They're not seeking salvation. They're, they're seeking the one they want to put to death. Or literally, once he's in glory, they're seeking the one that he, they put to death. All right. 
But there's nothing in there about their sins. There's nothing in there about their condemnation. Just simply, he's leaving and they can't follow. When we get to chapter 8, though, it does intensify, and it is a soteriological rebuke. None of them are saved. It becomes obvious when uh, he gets to verse 44, where he says, You are of your father, the devil. Now, in between here and verse uh, 44, some of them actually will get saved, but they get drowned out by the crowds that are around them. And we're going to spot some principles out of that as well. All right, some issues here. The theme of the soon departure continues throughout the subsequent chapters in John. It's not just in chapter 7, it's not just in chapter 8 where he says, look, I'm almost out of here. It continues throughout this section in chapter 12, 13, 14, 16, all in anticipation of his arrest and crucifixion. In chapter 12, it's verse 35. In chapter 13, verse 33. In chapter 14, it's verse 19. And in chapter 16, John 16, it's verses 16 through 19. Okay, won't take us terribly long. Let's look at each of these, starting in chapter 12. So you see the intensification from chapter 7 to chapter 8. Chapter 7, I'm leaving, you cannot follow. Chapter 8, I'm leaving, you cannot follow, you're going to die in your sin. Chapter 12. Now, in chapter 12, he's been anointed in Bethany. He's gone into Jerusalem. The kids are singing Hosanna. Great stuff here on Palm Monday. Um, Andrew will be useful. Philip and Andrew are used to bring some Greek uh, tourists here to uh, see Jesus. He's praying his prayer of trouble in verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. Nothing wrong with brutal honesty in your own prayer life. You know, uh, who are you trying to fool or who are you trying to impress or who are you trying to convince that you don't have any problems? Uh, the Lord knows all your problems. So in, in your prayers, um, if your soul is troubled, lay it out there and say, Father, my soul is troubled. That's what Jesus does here. But, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. See, prayer is a great time if, if you're tossing around uh, possible alternatives or ideas or this or that. If you're tossing that around in your thinking, it's not sinful. Christ isn't sinning. But what you have to do is at some point you've got to stop kicking around the dumb ideas and admit, okay, this is a dumb idea. Zero in on what the Father wants for you to do. And you can do that in prayer. It's a beautiful opportunity. So, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came out of heaven. I both glorified it and will do so again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Isn't this interesting? Jesus is in this prayer telling the Father about his troubled soul. And he's got an audience. There are people nearby listening to what he's praying, listening to the what they think is thunder. They're pretty clueless here. An angel has spoken to him. All right, then Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now judgment is upon this world. See, this critical moment where he, in prayer, in the priesthood of his prayer here. See, I don't think the, that Matthew 6, Lord's Prayer, is truly should be called Lord's Prayer. I think we have this. We've got John 17. We've got the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ on display. But he says here, 
now judgment is upon this world. At that moment of faith obedience where he sets aside his will finally for the, first, for the last time and heads to the cross, the uh, judgment is upon the cosmos. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Um, anyway, it goes on down here. Now notice the crowd in verse 34. Then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How then can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Remember, they were in this conundrum. They had suffering passages of their Christ. They had reigning passages of their Christ. And which one's got to be pretty popular over the years, do you think? Right? The reigning passages. Yes, stomp on those Gentiles. Yes, we want the mountain of the house of David to fill the earth. We want the dominion of Israel over the Gentiles. We want to plunder their sons. We want kings to bring their treasures all of those, and yes, we want the Christ to reign forever. All of those passages are true. But to look at the other passages that don't conveniently fit into your, into your uh, theological scheme and then say, well, we don't want to pay attention to those or, well, we, we're going to act like they're not there. That's a problem because those are also true. Everything God says is true. The passages we like, the ones we want to stress, those are true. But the passages maybe that we're not comfortable with, <laughs> we better adjust what causes us to be comfortable. Because God's word is there for our blessing. So, we heard that the Christ is going to live forever. Well, what about these other verses that says, like the sheep before its shearers is silent? Is that not also true? Don't allow yourself to fall into the either-or mentality that starts to edit the Bible into what you like. Except the both and philosophy that if God says it, it's true. So far as we handle our hermeneutic dispensationally and properly, you understand. All right. Now, so he says, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. All right. In any event, there are so many different things. Anyway, if, if you think about it, you might lift up some prayers. I'm in a little bit of an email correspondence at the moment with somebody that's at war with Zane Hodges and Grace Evangelical Society and all the rest, and they're condemning these groups for what they call the crossless gospel. And... It's very disturbing. It's very disturbing. And even, but what's more disturbing is not presentations that people put forth, but then the reaction of people that decide, well, it's time to suit up in our armor and go to war against, uh, against other brothers in Christ. And then they defend themselves and say, oh, well, we're just contending earnestly for the faith. We're just standing for truth and we're, we're casting down heretics and so forth. And it breaks my heart. In any event, now, uh, now we're in the target for uh, because we aren't joining in the condemnation that makes us participants in what we are not condemning. And so somehow we're to become activists to start publishing papers and writing books and distributing notes around the country and worldwide and if we don't, uh, then, then we're compromising with the enemy, as it were. So, anyway, it doesn't bother me any because I don't answer to them. 
I have to answer to Jesus Christ. And what he says is shepherd the flock of God among you. That tells me that my jurisdiction is right here. (laughs) My jurisdiction is right here. And if I see something out there that's a problem, then you bet I'm going to warn my congregation about it. I'm going to tell my sheep, hey, look out for this. This is this is a dangerous approach. This is a faulty approach. But I'm not going to take up arms and start publishing pamphlets and start distributing things around the country uh, because that just upsets the faith of, of all kinds of folks. And I don't want to be any part of that. I already know one church in a different state, in Indiana, where a deacon stood up with his newsletter to say, Pastor, are we going to join this? We've we got to go... We gotta go uh, join in this against grace evangelical we need to throw away all our zane hodges books we need to throw away all our bob wilkins stuff and and the pastor said uh what are you talking about there's some good stuff there i've got a lot of zane hodges books and and uh, bob wilkins stuff anyway if you want to go to war go to war but just don't take me because that's not my job so but you could read a verse like this where he says um while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And I would look at that and say, oh, Jesus is preaching a crossless gospel. Look at that. I don't see the word cross in verse 36. Oh, my goodness. Heretic. Where's it? Show me the cross in verse 36. And, and then tell me why it's so bad to communicate a verse or to lead someone to Christ utilizing Scripture if that verse doesn't actually have the word cross in it. Anyway, end of side trip. Verse 13, chapter 13. One thing uh, this congregation can rest assured, um, I quit marching when I turned in my army boots. (laughs) All right. So in November of 1991, I turned in my army boots and, and I'm not marching. Uh, or crusading or posting signs or and we're not transforming this world you know i'm we're preaching the word we're equipping believers that's what we're doing that's what we're doing all right if i if i was ever going to protest something i would protest protests i'll become a protest protester okay So, that was chapter 12, Believe in the Light. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 33, um, he just has communion with Judas, and uh, Judas goes out, and when he got out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. See, the stages of this, we're going to go through this in great detail coming up, but the stages that take place, where he says, Now is this world condemned. All right, or where he says, now is the Son of Man glorified, because there goes the betrayer out to sell him for the pieces of silver. So um, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You know, tonight, I'm getting arrested. Tomorrow, I'm on a cross. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews... I now say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. That's not because the disciples are not saved. It's because they have more work to do. You could think of this as you cannot come yet. You will down the road, but you're staying here to carry on the work. Over in chapter 14, verse 19, another use of this. 
I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you after a little while. The world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. He has gone to where we're not yet, but we do see him by faith. The assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We operate in the heavenly realms every single day. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. We're at the right hand of the Father. It's a wonderful encouragement. But that little while, little while, little while, again and again and again, he keeps hammering it through these chapters here in John. John 16, verses 16 through 19. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me. So you got a double use of a little while right there. Okay. Some of this is great because we, we can't put ourselves back in this circumstance, but we do live under imminency, do we not, with the imminent expectation of the rapture of the church? So everything he's giving here in, in, in the impact of this little while message is, is still a huge encouragement for us. It's not the imminency of the crucifixion, it's the imminency of the rapture. But imminency itself is the principle that we can, we can apply, meaning that the time is short, we better be serious about what we're doing. So some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he's telling us a little while? <laughs> okay. You see why repetition is important? How many times have they heard this little while, little while, little while, little while? Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, 13, 14. Now finally in 16, he's giving it to them again. And they're scratching their heads saying, uh, you know, Thaddeus, what do you think he's talking about? You know, and Bartholomew, he's, well, I don't know. What is this thing he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again in a little while and you will see me. And what is this? Because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Have you ever mentioned the rapture to somebody and they say, what are you talking about? Isn't that sad? And they're, they profess faith in Christ. They, they're churchgoers wherever they're going. And, and they've never been taught about the blessed hope. That's, that's amazing. So Jesus knew and they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? You know what I, what I like about this is what do you have here? You have an authoritative teacher. You have the best teacher that's ever walked the planet, God himself, right? He's available to ask questions of. He's available for teaching. He's available for clear answers. He's available to settle things. But what would they rather do? They would rather sit around in a small group and take turns asking their questions and throwing ideas back and forth. And, gee, you know, Fred, what do you think? And, no, I don't know, Bill. And, and this... It's the, it's the model today that churches get all wrapped up about these small group deals. And they have a, a stated, in writing, opposition to an authoritative pastor in a church. Are you deliberating together about this? That I said, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. Again, I think that comes into this contrast we're about to look at between the above and the below and the different perspectives. Things this world rejoices over, we weep. You know, a court ruling comes down and you've got two sides. You've got one group of people raising their hands, hooray, hooray, this is the greatest thing in the world. And you've got another group of people that hangs their head and just says, Lord, how much wrath are we under? And that's the distinction between the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. Okay, back to... Our text then in John 8. <clears throat> I go away and you will seek me, 
I will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So what's he going to do? Is he going to kill himself? Back in chapter 7, they thought he was going to go to the Greeks. <laughs> when he said, he's not going to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? You know, that's like a fate worse than death. <laughs> You're going to go to Greece? You're going to spend time with Gentiles? Yuck. So here, they think maybe he's going to kill himself. So here's the rebuke. Under point B, the soteriological rebuke spotlights his adversary's lost estate. You will die in your sin. Now, it's singular the first time it's used in verse 21, and it's plural twice in verse 24. He says, you will die in your sin. And then twice in verse 24, he says, you will die in your sins. Plural. And that comes out in the English translations you might be reading here this morning, and it bears out in the um, Greek text, using the date of singular the first time and using date of plurals the second and third time. As I mentioned, it's... Uh, it may not be the approach you would take with everybody, but it could be an approach you might take with somebody sometime. And in fact, the most recent salvation we witnessed here in this church, and our newest uh, our newest members in this church, if you ask him his testimony, and ask him uh, all of the times that uh, that that uh, Doug was speaking to him, and all the different approaches, and all the patience, and all the things. And then time after time after time, just, well, okay, yeah, that's nice. Okay, yeah, okay. And then finally, the man doing all the evangelizing uh, said, well, i got nothing else to say to you. You're rejecting the gospel. You're going to hell. That's crossed the line. That broke the camel's back. I'm not going to hell. I'm a good person. What are you talking about? Okay, just ask him sometime. You know who I'm talking about. Now, are there other people that this isn't going to work with? Yeah, a whole lot of people out there. If you look at them, look at them and say, you're going to hell. Say, fine, I want to go to hell. I've had people tell me that. All my friends are in hell. That's where I'm going. Okay, so as the Spirit leads, trust that He will place you in the right places with the right message at the right time. And normally it will be beyond anything you know what you're doing anyway. So, <laughs> So that works. All right, you will die in your sin, verse 21. Now, sin in the singular is the estate of sin. Sin in the singular is the, um, the estate of fallen humanity that Adam sinned, and through the transgression of the one, sin entered the world. Sin as a realm, as an estate, okay, as a sphere, all right? And uh, sin as a sphere is what every human being is born into, which is what provides for the total depravity, the complete hopelessness of the human race without Christ. That's sin in the singular. Separate issue from any personal sins, uh, you know, the, the 50,000 personal sins that, that we commit on a, on a uh, monthly basis, weekly basis, daily basis, whatever your particular sin um, velocity happens to be. Okay? Some people can do 50,000 sins uh, an hour, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe it takes you a whole year to get 50,000 sins in there. But anyway, I exaggerate. I throw big numbers out there just to do so. But those are the sins plural. 
Sins, plural, are personal sins, the deeds, the actions, the things for which we will give an account. Okay? But sin as an estate is, has nothing to do with anything we've done because that estate came about in the fall of Adam and we weren't on the scene. Okay? We had nothing to do with us. It's almost like, I've said this a couple times, people get kind of weird. I said, you know, you're, you're condemned by grace. If you ever want to think about it, the lost estate of sin that we're condemned by in Adam is at its heart a grace provision. Might be a little warped or confusing to think of it that way, but we didn't do anything to earn or deserve it. We just got born. There we are. So if it's not something we earn or deserve, what is it? It's grace. It's grace. Our condemnation in Adam, the lost estate in Adam, is a grace provision. And I find that to be an amazing corollary to the solution, the answer, the provision of salvation by grace through faith. Again, nothing we earn or deserved. God is working out his plan to glorify his son. And I love that. All right. If, if you don't follow that or don't like that, then don't repeat it. But I kind of like it. We have here a future middle indicative of apothenesco. Apothenesco. A-P-O-T-H-N-E-S-K-O. Apothenesco. Number 599 in the Strong's Concordance. For folks that use Strong's numbers for their word studies, 599 is apothenesco. It is a second person plural, meaning that he is speaking to the entire audience. He's uh, speaking here in Texas. We say y'all. Okay, all y'all, it's, it's not a singular individual, it is a plural that he's speaking. When he says you, he means y'all will die in your sins. Future tense, meaning it's a point of time not yet present. It is still yet to be revealed in the unfolding of time. Middle voice is interesting, although it's kind of normal for dying. In the active voice, you do the activity. In the passive voice, the activity is done to you. But in the middle voice, it's a, it's a blend of the two in some ways. And uh, dying is something you actually do, but you also experience the, uh, the effects of what you've just done. <laughs> you just died. Okay, so you're the one that did it, and uh, you're the one that experiences the effects of, uh, of the middle voice. The middle voice, the... Subject accomplishes the activity of the verb, but has an interest in the results. Which is what we learned from Ron Merriman, Pastor Ron Merriman, that's right. He taught us about the middle voice down in Houston a year, couple, two years ago now. He tells us that this guy's 87 years old, his wife is 86, they're just the sweetest, sweetest folks in the world. And he uh, was explaining middle voice to us as you know, a Greek lesson, impromptu Greek lesson. And he says, uh, I always kiss my wife in the middle voice. He says, because the subject accomplishes the activity, but has an interest in the results. So. That's what we have here. Apathenesco. And it's future. You will die. And it's interesting because they're already dead. It's like they themselves are the living, are the the literal illustration of what Adam and Eve were when they were told, dying you will die. And that the moment they ate from the fruit, they died. They died spiritually. They became separated from the holiness of God. But their physical bodies, of course, were still alive and lingered for another 930 years, at least in Adam's case. So dying you will die. He's telling these dead people that they're going to die. Future tense, 
middle voice. Indicative mood is the uh, mood of reality. This is the declarative reality of what is going to happen. Now, secondly, under this are the expressions in your sin or in your sins. And what you see in the Greek is that it bears out what we have in the English, the tia, te is your singular, hamartia, the tia ending is your singular, plural, tais, hamartiais is plural. In both cases, though, they're the sins of y'all, humon, it's y'all's sins, or it's y'all's sin. The estate belongs to you just like the personal sins belong to you. You identify with the realm of humanity. So the use of both the singular and the plural indicates that the unbeliever dies in the estate of sin. They die in the estate of sin. And by virtue of that estate, they're going to hell. They're not going to hell for what they've done. They're going to hell for the estate in which they perished. Those who do not have the Son are condemned already. They also die with unforgiven sins, plural. The unforgiven sins, plural. Now, these are the sins, these are the deeds that are recorded in the multiple books that they are accounted for, that they are... Um, the degree of their eternal punishment is proportional to their deeds. Revelation chapter 20, that each one is judged according to their deeds. All right. So we can say on the one hand that their sins are irrelevant. They're going to go to hell, not for what they've done. They're going to go to hell because they've not believed in Jesus Christ. They do not have eternal life. They're in the estate of sin, singular. That's this first part. Just like it says, if their name is not found recorded in the book of life, then they're going to die and go to hell. Once they're in hell, however, although pastors do emphasize, well, sins aren't the issue, sins aren't the issue, sins aren't the issue. Sins were, sins were paid for on the cross. That is true. Sins were paid for on the cross. But the payment was not accepted to their account. The righteousness was not imputed to their account. Okay. And uh, you can't just dismiss it or ignore it as if it's an accounting gimmick. The truth is, is that payment was made for them and payment was rejected. Unless you're of the type that doesn't believe payment was made for them. Whatever the case, we have sin singular and we have sin plural. Both are true. It's not an either or, both are true. They die in their sin, that lost estate. They die also with these unforgiven sins. You will die in your sins, plural. Both are in view. Um, if that's in any way confusing, then look with me briefly at Revelation chapter 20. The great white throne. Great white throne where Cain and, and uh, Pharaoh and every other unbeliever you've read about in the Bible is here. And every unbeliever you've ever known that died and went to hell is here. Hades chokes up the dead and they stand here at the great white throne. The small, the great and the small standing before the throne. The books, plural, books were opened. And another book, singular, was opened. I want you to note the difference between the singular and the plural because they're exactly like the difference in the singular and the plural here with sin and sins. The book singular is the book of life. 
And if they're no longer in the estate of sin, singular, then their name is recorded in the book of life, the book singular of life. And then there's the books, plural. So books, plural, were opened, and another book, singular, was opened. And there's a reason why that singular book is separated from the plural books. You don't just throw it onto the pile and count it with all the other plural books and just call it books. You've got books and you've got a book, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things which are written in the books, plural, according to their deeds. This is the accountability. What we sow, we shall reap. This is the degrees of punishment that are intensified. In fact, when Ezekiel was given a guided tour of hell, he saw the Assyrians at the very bottom layer as the most wicked nation to ever walk the earth up to that point of time in human history. And when uh, the Lord took him on that tour through hell, they were at the bottom. Not that I would want to be in hell anywhere, top, bottom, or in the middle, but the bottom's got to be worse than anywhere else in hell, don't you think? Some of this is terminology maybe we're not capable of grasping. But um, Now notice, though, the one criteria for salvation remains the gospel. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book, singular, the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So nobody was cast into hell for what they've done. You go to hell because you don't have eternal life. You're not in Christ. Once you get to hell, then the judgment is levied according to your deeds. And so this is, we can go back to John 8 now. This is identical to what Christ is saying. You will die in your sin, singular. You will also die in your sins, plural. Fortunately for you and I, we are not going to die in our sin. The Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world, singular there also, by the way. And our sins have been forgiven. We've been washed clean, white as snow. They're not going to be brought up. When our books are open and our deeds are referenced, it's not sins that are going to be referenced. It's going to be the production that's evaluated. Divine good versus human good production. So there's the detail on that. Thirdly, point C. The contrast between below and above. The contrast between below and above was true for Christ and becomes true for us as well. The contrast between below and above was true for Christ. Going all the way back to chapter 3, also stated here in chapter 8. In John 3, you've got verse 13 and verse 31. In John 8, it's our verse here in verse 23. It becomes true for us as well. The moment of our salvation, we are born from above. We are no longer of this world. John 17, verses 14 and 16. Let's look at those and we'll finish the point. The contrast of above and below. Wisdom and ways are critical for believers to understand. But before we get to that, let's look at these other passages. The contrast between below and above was true for Christ. These uh, blasphemers that want to list uh, Jesus Christ on a level playing field with Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius and, and other uh, religious leaders of times gone by. And they say, oh, well, he was a teacher. He was a good moral man and so forth. And they want to put him on a playing field, a level plane with 
uh, these pagans that are in hell today. No, there's a contrast. He's from above. He's from above. He lowered himself to identify in our estate, in our realm of humanity. But his origin is eternal glory. John uh, 3, in the message to Nicodemus, where he tells him he has to be born again, and Nicodemus is trying to figure out how he's going to fit in his mother's womb. We don't know, obviously. Uh, the, the, the imagery on this is sometimes hilarious. You know, you got a grown adult son and, and you know, poor mom. You know, you want back in the womb? How's that going to work? You know, and some it's just, I don't know, I laugh sometimes. I'm, I'm kind of twisted and warped that way. But, um, you know, big old whopping John Carnegie walks in here and here's poor Nan. You think, how does a person go back into the womb? Well, Nicodemus can't figure that out either. And he says, are you the teacher of Israel? You do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See the contrast? Then verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Of the greatest testifiers in the history of the world, you want to know what heaven's like? You want to know how to get there? Why don't you ask somebody who, who came from there? All right. So there's the contrast. And down in verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. You know, think about it. You, people, this is universal. You, you speak where you came from. Right? Uh, you know who speaks more French than anybody else in the world? Yeah, people in France. Yeah. And, and you know, it's just... <laughs> okay. It's kind of obvious. Now, if you're from the world, what's your native tongue? So to speak. Yeah, you're a cosmos native because that's your origin, your birth, your nature until it's transformed and you're given a new nature. Well, where's Jesus from? What's his tongue? What's his message? What's his origin? See, and so he's using this to make the point into contrast below and above. For us, it then becomes the struggle after salvation. We want to spend more and more time um, reflecting our new nature and hopefully less and less time reflecting that old nature, which we're commanded to put away, even though we tend to put it back on. It's, it's like that. You know, that old, nasty, ratty, stinky shirt. You know, it's really, it ought to be in the trash by now. But you know what? It is so comfortable, you still pull it out and wear it as often as your wife lets you. <laughs> and that's the nature of the old man. We're told to lay it aside. But we get, yeah, I'm going to put that thing back on again. Because it's fun and my carnal nature likes it. So we got above and we got below. He gave it. Jesus gave that message in chapter 3. Here he, we get it again in chapter 8. In the high priestly prayer of John 17 is where we see our own application as he's interceding on our behalf to the Father. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. God has made provision for our joy. 
for our mental attitude, for our well-being. What the world would call today our well-adjusted mental health. If I can borrow terms that turn my stomach. All right. So we may have joy. And he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. This is what's amazing of the world. You know, this is not possible in in the earthly experience. Wherever you're from is where you're from. If you're from Seattle, you're from Seattle. If you're from Africa, you're from Africa. If you're from wherever, that's where you're from. And that can't be retroactively changed. That's your origin. That's your source. But for us, who are now given a new nature, although we remain in the world, we are no longer of the world. That's like we're no longer Jews or Gentiles. I was born a Gentile. But when I was born again, I surrendered my Gentile status. I'm now the bride of Christ, in which there is no Jew nor Gentile. Same thing in this stewardship. If a person's racially Jewish from their physical birth, when they become a believer in Jesus Christ... They are no longer racially Jewish, at least in God's dispensational accounting system. They are body and bride of Jesus Christ. Now, so we have this contrast. They are no longer, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We have the same parentage Jesus Christ has, has at that point. We're brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We, we fall under the same father, the same parentage. Uh, I have given them your word. Let's see. Let's go to verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Or we might say, I don't ask you to take away all their problems. I don't ask you to give them this millennial life of flowery, bed of ease, uh, no problem-free, conflict-free, Pollyanna kind of lovey-dovey Christianity. That's not what it is. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from evil or the evil one. That is, to offer the divine protection necessary to endure in the angelic conflict. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in, you know, a local church social program. Is that what it says? What does it say? Truth. Sanctify them in the truth. You mean believers are supposed to be abiding in truth? We're supposed to grow in knowledge? We're supposed to be in Bible study? Yeah. If you want to endure in the angelic conflict, not be devoured. All right. So the contrast between below and above was true for Christ becomes true for us as well. Along with the positions come the associated wisdom or teaching of those positions. The contrast of above and below wisdom. You've got wisdom from above and wisdom from below. And the above and below ways. My ways are not your ways. Now there are my thoughts, your thoughts. These are critical for believers to understand as well. James 3, 15 through 17 for wisdom, which is a... Uh, Reflection of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, where the terms are ways and thoughts. But wisdom and ways are either from above or they're from below. You say, well, that's awfully black and white. Well, if it's not from God as the source, where is it coming from? All right, James 3. 
Oh, I tell you, you know, if I wasn't a pastor, I wonder if if I would be my pastor. <laughs> if I would listen to myself or if I go find, find somebody else that made more sense. Does it, does it ever get frustrating when in the top half of the hour you hear something like, don't fall for the either or trap, it's both and. And then in the second half of the hour... It's either or, because it's either from God or it's from the world. So in this half of the hour, I'm saying, don't fall for the both-hand trap. I'm saying it's either or. It's either from God or it's from the world. Both are true. The first half of the hour, dealing with what God said, is always true. Everything God promises is, is both and always true. But God's not the only one spouting forth information, and the liar has to be rejected. All right. James three fifteen through 17. This wisdom, let me back up. Uh, who among you is wise and understanding? Well, we might point out, biblically speaking, Solomon was the wisest human being ever to walk this planet until Jesus. And then uh, Satan was the wisest creature ever to inhabit this, uh, this universe until Jesus. And what happened to both Satan and his wisdom and Solomon and his wisdom? So if, if you're waving, raising your hand here saying, oh, I'm wise, I'm understanding, well, then this is written for you. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So in other words, you make application of that which you possess. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, what you think is wisdom has actually been corrupted. That's what happened to Satan. That's what happened to Solomon. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Why did he accumulate all those women? What was driving, what jealousy was driving all those women? What jealousy or bitterness was, or selfish ambition was driving that harem of a thousand women? Well, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Okay? It's one or the other. It's either or, because God said so. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. That's not God's wisdom. That's not God's wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Anybody that tells me they can't tell the difference between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom, I say, well, then you're not using God's wisdom to tell the difference. You're using the world's wisdom to try to tell the difference and you don't find any difference because you're that, you're that blind already. You couldn't be any more opposite from the descriptions in verses uh, 16 to the description in verse 17. And the seed whose fruit is righteous is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is why, by the way, when we discuss various aspects uh, in, in different things, if uh, people want to ask my opinion of, of going to a, a psychiatrist and, and trying to solve their problems, I ask, well, what's wrong with God's method? Do you want to use the world's method all the time? 
What's wrong with God's method? Do you use the world's method for other problems you come across? Say, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a marriage problem. Okay. You want to use the world's method or you want to use God's method? I've got financial struggles. All right. You want to use the world's method or you want to use God's method? And I, it doesn't matter. Pick any subject in the universe. All right. You want to use the world's method or you want to use God's method? You don't have to put it that way, do you? What are you putting it that way for? Come on. All right. This can, this can also be God's method too. Can't God work through this? All right. Isaiah 55. No, there is a difference. The source is either from above or below. The activity is either a promoter of peace and godliness or it is the promoter of selfishness, jealousy, ambition, and all the rest. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. See, this truly comes to the core of who God is how he reveals himself, and how we um, function in his plan. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. And I'm headed for verses 8 and 9, but I... I just like verses that have ho in them. And that goes back to verse 1 with ho. <laughs> Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. See, that grabs your attention, doesn't it? Someone stands up there and shouts ho. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. There, there are some evangelists that don't like using the word come in their, in their approach. I don't object to it. Because the Bible uses it in so many places. And uh, we've got wine and milk and money and I don't, there's no cross. This must be one of those crossless gospels again. Um, all right, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful and mercy shown to David. And it goes on. Uh, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Uh, of course, that verse doesn't exist in postmodern uh, philosophy. There's no such thing as wicked. There's no such thing as unrighteous. There's no such thing. What's right for you is fine, but don't, you know, don't judge them for what they're doing. How, how, how do you dare say they're wicked or unrighteous? They're okay with it. It's good for them. No, God says, let him return to the Lord. He will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You see this? They are mutually exclusive. There's God's way of thinking. There's man's way of thinking. And if we're going to come into conformity to his image, what needs to happen is he needs to change our thinking so that it's in line with his thinking. That's what repentance is, the change of thinking. It's what the renewal process is where we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. So my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, an immeasurable dimensional distance. You can't measure it in terms of space. It is infinitely separated in terms of an entirely different realm of existence. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So you should pay attention to the word of God. And that's what uh, is promised here. Does not return void. Gary's favorite verse. It was Isaiah 55:11. 11. 
my word which goes forth from my mouth, they will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. We pay attention to the word of God because that's what transforms our thinking. That is what molds us. That's what renews us in the spirit of our mind. That's what Romans 12:2 is all about so that we cast off this earthly thinking and we are, uh, re- that we replace that with God's thinking, his ways, his thoughts, his wisdom. Finally, point D, the one and only remedy for this default condemnation is faith in Jesus Christ. I am Jehovah. John 8, 24. The only, the one and only remedy, it's the only way. The one and only remedy for this default condemnation. And by default, it's the lost estate you're born into. Didn't earn it, didn't deserve it but you're in it from the moment you're born. The one and only remedy for this default condemnation is faith in Jesus Christ. I am Jehovah or Yahweh, whatever pronunciation you prefer. John 8, 24, Therefore, I say to you that you will die in your sins, for unless, unless, Meaning, here's the one condition by which this won't happen. Every other condition out there, this is going to happen. But this is the one and only way. The term unless with one stipulation means there's one and only way. Unless you believe, place your trust and confidence, verb pistuo, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The revelation of I am Yahweh, just as blunt as it was to Moses when I am said, go tell the children of Israel that I am is redeeming them out of bondage. Identical message being given here. I am is redeeming them out of bondage. And it's not Egyptian bondage. It's bondage to sin. And I am is not sending Moses to do it. I am is coming personally to do it, to lead and redeem his people. That's the one and only provision. All right. Well, we've got a good start. You got one point. How about that? And sub points, A, B, C, and D. And, and B had two sub sub points. So you got one point. We'll come back next week for point two. And uh, there are a total of six that we will have in verses 21 through 59. So we'll be here for a couple more weeks at least. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word. And Father, I, I lift up this uh, email I'm going to respond to this afternoon and, and the uh, questions I'm going to answer. I pray that the answers can be communicated in grace and, and love. And I pray, Father, uh, I, I pray for... Not not the lady that, that's writing to me. and oh, I pray for her too. But the whole philosophy behind that and, the, and the, the pastor that threw down the gauntlet and went to war over these things. And Father, uh, he's in your hands. Uh, I don't judge him. He answers to Jesus Christ, same as I do. But Father, when, when these things spread uh, beyond the appropriate boundaries and start to uh, disrupt other assemblies in other states... Father, then, then I recognize that, that there's a problem there because the, 
the wisdom from above is peaceable and, and pure and, and, and does not promote this kind of thing. But when we observe the, the discord and the strife and so forth, Father, it's, uh, it's clear from what origin this wisdom uh, promotes that. So I, I give that to you and I pray for uh, discernment in the matters that are right. I thank you for these scriptures that we've examined. I thank you for the, um, the, the glory of our Savior and for his testimony to the, uh, the I am message of Yahweh and Father, I just pray as we continue in these studies, you would deepen our understanding and that you would deepen our intimacy. And Father, help us to minister to others, to proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. And then also, Father, to manifest gentleness to uh, our brethren that have perhaps been uh, caught up into, into something improper. Thank you for that. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.